Hello and welcome back to Backchat. If the Nature Podcast is a trusty old textbook, then Backchat is the notes I scrolled on the back of an envelope during a second year stats lecture. This month we're tackling scientific data, scientific papers, and religion. I'm Adam Levy, and joining me in the studio is Richard Van Norden. Hello, I'm Nature's European Bureau Chief out of London. On the line from Munich is Alison Abbott. Hi, I write for Nature from Munich. And phoning in from Shanghai is David Cyrinowski. Hello, I'm uh, Nature's Asia-Pacific correspondent based in Shanghai. We'll be starting off gently with the light topic of science and religion. The current Pope, Pope Francis, is making efforts to connect with science and scientists alike. Given the historically tempestuous relationship between science and religion, how should scientists respond? We'll also be taking a look at a crackdown on fake data in China. We all want better data, but is the threat of the death penalty the way to achieve it? Plus, we'll take a look at a paper that's been retracted twice. How much can and should scientific publishing learn from retractions like these? First, this month, religion, or to be more precise, Catholicism. Alison, this pope has set himself apart in many ways, and his engagement with science is just one of them. Yes, that's right. Pope Francis、um, became pope in 2013, and he has、uh, noticeably been more receptive to.、Um, Scientists. What examples are there of this engagement? So last week、um, there was a historic meeting of the Pope with、um, about one thousand members of the Huntington's disease、uh, community around the world, and this is what set me on my train of thought about it. I wrote a, a leader、uh, highlighting a couple of these examples. The、uh, initiative came from two scientists who work in Huntington's disease. And had been aware that they were using research material from Huntington's patients, and so these scientists、um, started to think about what they could do for these people as some sort of thank you. And since they'd been working with、uh, these rather large communities based in South America, where Catholicism is、um, extremely widespread, they thought that they'd contact the Pope and ask if he would give them an audience, and. Perhaps surprisingly, the whole thing took off, and it was a huge affair that took place last week. And this isn't the only discipline in which there's been increased interaction between the Pope and and scientists. I suppose climate change is another big one, right? Climate change is another big one, and I think the initial encouragement actually came from two years ago when the Pope created、uh, wrote this encyclical, which is sort of like.、Uh, A statement to his staff, that is the cardinals and others who interact with their parishes, on how they should respond to current issues of the day. But it very much gives、uh, the impression that accepting climate change is man-made and something that has to change is fundamental to the pope's policy. His views on contraception、uh, have become. Actively ambiguous, and this was something that was very interesting to confront for the Huntington's patients last week, because they have no、uh, cure, but you can avoid the disease if the Pope allows you to use contraception or to do pre-implantation testing before having a child. So this paints a picture of quite a huge leap forward for the Catholic Church reaching out to scientists. 
the, the pre-implantation diagnosis, is that something that the, the Pope has a position on? Yes, you're not allowed to interfere with the human embryo in any form whatsoever, so pre-implantation diagnosis would not be acceptable. It's in the way that contraception is, at least theoretically, uh, not acceptable. Given that there are, of course, inevitably still some gaps between the church's positions and certain positions of researchers, is this something that just concerns scientists who are Catholic or who live in Catholic countries? Or, David, should scientists in China care that the Pope is more engaged in science? I don't think that there are probably many people in China that that, uh, are following that. But so the scientists who are actually involved in, in developing the related technologies probably would care in the long run. You know, it, it will come to them eventually that uh, you know there 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 is more acceptance of these technologies in the West, and you know that, that what the Pope says is, is part of that. For scientists who aren't religious, is this mostly just good news because the Church has such a wide reach? I think so. And the, the church does have some influence in the climate debate, I think, because you you know, if you can quote the Pope as endorsing a position which President Trump might not endorse, for example, this is a good counterbalance. Yeah, we're in a slightly strange position right now of hoping that the Pope will convince uh, a politician, the leader of the free world, <laughs> that climate change is a real thing and a real threat. Yes, yeah, pretty bizarre stuff, isn't it? Alison, you wrote an editorial, I think, a few years ago about the Vatican pushing for adult stem cells to be used in treatments um, because of their antipathy to embryonic stem cells and saying that that was a shame because they were so keen to embrace the potential of adult stem cells that they were pushing it way beyond uh, the state of knowledge about their use in treatments. So it's sometimes the, you know, it's not always a... Good that the, um, the Pope and the Vatican are interested in science if they're, if they're pushing things that aren't ready. No, absolutely. And I think the language I used was a little bit stronger than it's a shame. This was um, just a few weeks, actually, after the White Smoke announced uh, the, the selection of Pope Francis. So it was organised under Pope Benedict. And it was a totally misguided meeting that they had there where... This became a platform for for some of these companies, you know, that promote adult stem cell transfer from your own blood cells or bone marrow cells or even fat cells that's going to miraculously cure every disease that you have. And these companies uh, operate in a very unethical space. They offer expensive therapy that is not without risk and is almost certainly without value in places where it's allowed, which are fewer and fewer in the world now. But nonetheless, the Vatican, in its um, mission to have an alternative to human embryonic stem cells, allowed this to happen. I think uh, the Vatican is becoming a little bit more sophisticated than this now and is unlikely to be taken in or to collude with um, such clearly bad science. Well, now that we've settled this tricky topic, let's move on to our second and turn to China. Now, China is getting serious about stopping fake data. What's the situation, David? What's what's going on? Well, this, uh, this is uh, specifically about fake data for in drug applications. So when people are applying to get uh, a drug approved so that they can sell it on the market, they submit their data to the China version of the Food and Drug Administration, 
The problem is that they're they've had a backlog of applications, and most of it is is junk that should never be approved. And the uh, Chinese government basically got fed up with with trying to deal with this and, and sort through all this junk. And so basically, they they've come down and said that they are going to prosecute people who submit fake data for these drug approvals. Surely, fake data was already something that was at least frowned upon, maybe illegal? Well, definitely frowned upon, um, but not illegal. So there, there were, if, if you made a counterfeit drug and you sold it on the market in China, you could get in trouble for that. But if you submitted a, a drug for approval and you used fake data in that submission, if you got it through the approval process, then you're okay to sell it. Now, the, the very act of submitting fake data is, is a crime and punishable uh, by years in prison and even by death. Are there any other examples, I suppose, out there of, in China or elsewhere of such ex- extreme punishment for dodgy research? Dodgy research, I, I think, still isn't really prosecuted in most places. But this is specifically for stuff that's submitted to the drug agency. And in, in that sense, there, there are. Like in, in the U.S., there are famous cases of people that work at contract research organizations, and these are places that are basically paid to give uh, candidate drugs to people. And there are a lot of reasons you're not supposed to give to people, but to to get their numbers up, some of the uh, people running these trials would ignore the exclusions. So even if you're, you're, you're not supposed to have smokers in your clinical trial, they would include them. So there, there are cases that, uh, in the U.S., the guy being put in jail for 15 years, who basically just ignored all of these reasons that he wasn't supposed to be putting people in the trial. So there are you know, prison terms given to people uh, for doing this. Do we have any indication, David, of how common uh, made-up data in clinical trials is in China? Your story talked about some earlier crackdowns where an extraordinary percentage of applications were then withdrawn does, I mean, it was something like 80%, wasn't it, from your story? Yeah, so last year the, the government came out and said, basically, if, if any of the applications that you currently have pending with us turn out to have bad data in them, we are going to blacklist you from applying in the future. And like you said, 80% of the people retracted their uh, applications. It doesn't mean all of these are fraudulent. It could just mean that they were sloppy or they didn't have confidence in them for whatever reason. I thought this was the most extraordinary story. I mean, the most extraordinary thing, of course, is the execution for, you know, if you um, cheat in your uh, application, you could actually be executed. First of all, this, this story is, I mean, the, this idea that you could have executions, I think a lot of people, their, their first instinct is, no, there's no way you could execute for someone for just putting in bad, uh, bad data. But then you think about it and you know, there are cases where someone submits fake data and then people die from that. And that's happened in China. And in fact, it happened, um, you know, 10 years ago, there was a former FDA, uh, the, the head of the FDA, who was executed in China because he had been accepting bribes to approve drugs that eventually killed people. So, you know, I, I think we'll probably see some of that this time around, too, where all of a sudden you have someone who is given a very harsh penalty and and they'll hope that that is going to be something that uh, you know people pay attention to. I have to say that it's not just Chinese clinical trials that are in doubt right now. There's there's some doubts about um, international clinical trials uh, that are run across many different countries. Uh, and there was a paper out, I think, in the NAJM quite recently, 
uh, that followed up this big trial where there was some doubt about the data from the arms of the trial from Russia and Georgia. And there's big questions now being raised about whether these international trials, every arm of the trial, the data can be trusted. So it's uh, it's not just China where there might be concerns. Is there a more organic way of science self-correcting, I suppose, in cases like this? I mean, things like replication studies, can they handle some of this before we get, I suppose, courts involved? I guess replication is extremely expensive. How much does each clinical trial cost? I mean, we're talking about tens and tens, sometimes even hundreds of millions of euros or dollars to conduct a, a big uh, phase three clinical trial. So, I mean, you can't do it at a drop of a hat. And of course, we're we're seeing uh, the movement even in the in the the states and Europe just to get companies to to publish their darn trial results is hard enough. Yeah. And just seeing a bit of movement on that with various authorities saying you must publish your results. You you've got to feel that the farm industry has a has a long way to go to to gain trust. There's this this idea that science is self-correcting and and so there's a a bit of a lax attitude towards it that that science is going to work its way out if it's not true scientists will find that it's not true. And I think that uh, is it's a bit naive and, and I think it does uh leave open you know, science journals to to bad publications and leaves open uh, drug approval agencies to bad applications. So, uh, I I think there is there is something that uh, you know we, we could we could do with a bit of more oversight on this. Speaking of uh, dodgy research practices, let's turn to our third and final topic of the month, which is retractions. Now, Richard, there's been a re-retraction recently. Right. This uh, this re-retraction caught my eye from Retraction Watch, the website that tracks retractions. Um, and it's a study that suggested that vaccines raise the risk of autism. It's not very good science. It's based on anonymous online questionnaires from the mums of vaccinated or unvaccinated children, just asking them about their kids' allergies or neurodevelopmental disorders. There's no controls here for whether the, the two groups of children had different numbers of visits to doctors. There's no real knowledge of who these mums are. One of the authors is a chiropractor. It's not even clear that this study was done. So, I mean, no scientist would say that this was a good paper, but it um, appeared in a journal called Frontiers in Public Health in November 2016. There was an immediate protests on, on Twitter about it, and it was uh, it was retracted. The journal said that, in fact, it had never actually published the paper. It had just sort of accepted it and put it online provisionally. And then uh, it appeared again in another journal, Journal of Translational Science, under a different title, but the same paper. And Retraction Watch reported that that's been retracted too. So, um, yeah, what is this <laughs> What is this episode tell us about science publishing? I mean, I think that that there are journals that don't deserve the name journals that are outright predatory, just accepting anything, taking money for it. Um, and so I suppose this this double retraction is just a very extreme example of that. But I'm pleased to say that we're living in a golden age of retractions, and we should be very, very pleased about that. Because uh, before the turn of this millennium, uh, you scientists were seeing about 30 retractions a year. Uh, there we seem to be in an age of utterly clean literature. Uh, you know, what rubbish that was. Um, and now we're seeing retractions risen about 20-fold, about 600 a year now, um, which sounds like a lot. It's certainly rising a lot faster than the, the number of papers published, but it's still only 
0.04% of the, you know, 2 million of English language papers published each year. So it people look at that and they're still sort of reassured that it's still a small number. But actually, you know, we know that retraction should be higher. We know that surveys in which scientists self-report their misconduct, that they admit to the misconduct, typically they self-admit to fabricating or falsifying data at, at, at uh, rates that, you know, approach kind of 1%, 2%. But, you know, for a profession, that's pretty good. Um so it's ridiculous that retractions are so few. There should be thousands of retractions each year. I think many people opine, and they may be right, that today's kind of ultra-competitive, publish-or-perish, Photoshop-savvy, tenure-obsessed, blockbuster-drug-focused scientific culture is, is leading to a rise in fraud. Um, and, that, and that may be true, but I don't think that the rising retractions data really tells you very much about that. I think it's more a sort of social and political phenomenon that we are seeing more retractions from journals. And I think that's to do with um, the uh, greater public pressure um, and the greater visibility. You can now have everything is online. Twitter can be used to call out dodgy data. Um, so I, I'm, I sort of think that it's great that we're seeing more and more retractions and, and we should see more. So isn't the ideal that we should see zero in an ideal world where no one is publishing papers that should be retracted in the first place? Well, I don't think you can ever get zero because there will always be people who cut corners. And I don't think the peer review will ever be able to catch all these cut corners. So I don't know what the natural number should be, but I'm pretty sure it's too low. But what's surprising to me about this is that when I submitted my thesis, for example, it went through anti-plagiarism software that automatically checked that I hadn't copied anything from elsewhere or just replicated something from elsewhere. I would have thought that these journals would have at least this kind of automatic software. Yes, it's ludicrous. And most journals do use this kind of software. And, you know, the fact that this got published again just tells you that this is as much a journal as a you know as a as a spam email is a is a legitimate communication it's just a thing with a website uh but uh, weirdly you know these not really journals are, are the least likely to attract usually because they just don't care and you actually see more retractions in the mid-range and higher journals nature and science for example have quite a lot of retractions relative to the number of papers they publish um and that's probably partly to do with the fact that uh Perhaps people cut corners to get into these journals, but also these journals are publishing absolute cutting-edge, unknown, venturing into new science, not uh, routine science that confirms uh, what you know the, whether the parameters are already known. So there's probably going to be more attractions there as well. But also these journals are more likely to attract because they need to maintain their reputation, whereas the crappy journals at the bottom of the pile don't have a reputation to maintain. They just need to make money. I've done a lot of stories on scientific misconduct and um, and it's just such a huge, slow and expensive process to get something retracted when you're dealing with scientists and multi-author papers that just simply don't want to accept this. It takes it can take years. You have the editors don't want to retract it because, you know, maybe they accepted it in the first place. It's embarrassing. You know, if you tell me that there's only a few hundred retractions a year, I think that many. How did they manage to achieve that? There's very little motivation for for retracting. I mean, from from this from the journal's perspective, from the from the author's perspective, it's a it's a very long and drawn out process. And I, I think that most scientists trust their their instincts, and I think they're probably right. They can go through, look at a paper, decide that it's not worth 
considering because they, they think it's either fraudulent or because it's just sloppy and, and not reproducible, and then they'll just ignore it. And I think that's how scientists usually deal with this, is they just ignore papers. A lot of papers turn out to be wrong for various reasons. What what leads, in theory at least, a paper to being retracted? Is it explicitly if it's sloppy or actively fraudulent? Well, it should be that the, you can't rely on the on the findings of the paper. But in practice, as you say, that's not true. I mean, just to take a very famous paper, Svante Pabo's 1985 paper, where he, he cloned nuclear DNA from an ancient mummy that appeared in Nature. We, we realize now that it's wrong. There was contamination. But yeah, no one's asking for it to be retracted. DNA extraction techniques have moved on. The old methods aren't relevant. And it just it just sits there and essentially everything in it is wrong, but whatever. You know, Pablo is, is rightly a leader now in, in the extraction of, of ancient DNA. Um, so it seems that the, the bar is, if the paper is so flawed that it's causing real problems, which could be unfair self-promotion or career enhancement for somebody, wasting time and money because other labs are trying to build it and they're not sure if it's true or not. So there has to be a kind of live real life problem and once the water's passed under the bridge most scientists will just will just let it go it just reminded me of a, a story that i was uh writing about earlier which was counterfeit uh biological reagents to be used in experiments in china and, and uh one of the authors of a paper who ended up using one of these uh, counterfeit reagents and did a study and thought well, i have these great results uh, published the paper, and then later found out that it was a counterfeit reagent he was using. And so he lost, completely lost faith in his own results. He decided not to retract. Um, instead, he just he wrote uh, to the to the editor of the journal and said, hey, no one should trust these data. This is what happened. And so I guess there, there's a, a sense among scientists where is if, if there is already an indication that uh, a paper has lost its reliability... You don't have to retract it. It's it's already dead. But the paper's still there. If I stumbled upon it, not knowing this context, I might think it's trustworthy. If you're not a scientist in the field, it's it's unlikely that you're going to stumble upon these papers. So the people who actually come across these papers are people who who are probably already invested in the field and probably know. I'm not saying that they you know these papers shouldn't be uh, retracted, but the uh, economics of it, you know, who's going to go through and, and actually do this this filtering. Um, I think scientists kind of trust their themselves to to do it. You have to think of students who are trying to learn science and will come across this in, if they're investigating a particular field. It's I think it's not completely true to say that those that come across it will be scientists who know better anyway. It seems to me the problem comes when the specialist field gets exposed to the outside, whether that be journalists, students, scientists from another field. And they don't have any flags or signals, as you were saying, Alison, to, to alert them to problems. That's when you need retractions as that clear signal to everybody else. That's all we have time for this back chat. Enjoy it until it is retracted. Thank you to David Cyrinowski, Alison Abbott and Richard Van Norden. For all the latest science news, nature.com forward slash news is the place to go. And we'd love to know what you think of the podcast. Drop us an email, podcast at nature.com, a tweet at nature podcast, or feel free to vent in the form of a review on iTunes accompanied by a handful of stars. I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening.